I don't have enough kind words to, to say about Brother Kevin Merritt. And uh, he has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. Great preacher, great pastor. May be one of the greatest of all time. Just ask him. <laughs> Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. I appreciate the invitation, brother. And uh, I have been around Brother David Barnett. Picked up some of his nasty habits. And, um, he's probably picked up some of mine as well. But uh, we've had a good season of fellowship together. And I appreciate him as well. We are, we know each other and love each other because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for that gospel, we'd have probably never met. Never known one another. Never had an appreciation for one another, even if we did meet, probably. It is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to preach about that gospel tonight, if I might, for a little while. Talk about the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is just a small aspect of it when you come to 1 Corinthians 15. They're dealing with an issue in the church. Some have entered into the church and have begun to teach that there is no resurrection. If you look at verse 12, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul points out this terrible inconsistency that is existing in the church at Corinth. He begins to correct it in the early part of this chapter by first and foremost reorienting the people with the gospel. Let me read the first 11 verses here and we'll try to say a few things about the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I'm always compelled to make a few statements about that verse. The Apostle Paul does not minimize what the other apostles have done. He does not say that they did nothing or that they have not fulfilled their course, God-appointed course in their ministries or lives. 
It simply says that whatever has been wrought in the mercy and providence of God in their lives, that he has labored more abundantly than them all. And yet he's conscious enough of his own, of his own self, we might say, that he realizes it's not him. But it's the grace of God which is in him. We have nothing to boast about, do we? But the grace that's in Christ. Verse 11, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. This is one of those texts that is often quoted whenever someone wants a, just a brief summarization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul make, makes four statements, in fact, in this text that essentially carries us through the essence or the fundamental elements of the gospel of Christ. He lets us know that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he rose again the third day. And he was seen. This is what Paul refers to as the gospel. Now ultimately in the context of this chapter, Paul is pointing out or Paul's point is to show the believers there in Corinth that that which they have been hearing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the resurrection in general, they in fact in verse number 12 was a fundamental, uh, a fundamental attack upon the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you're hearing that there is no resurrection. Do you not realize the implications of that upon the gospel itself? Do you not come to understand that, that, that making such a statement is an assault, an attack, upon the gospel of Jesus Christ by which you have been saved, he mentions in verse number 2. In other words, he's saying you cannot believe that and believe the gospel at the same time. The two are inconsistent. The two cannot stand together. You cannot believe that strange teaching that has infiltrated the church in Corinth without in some measure at least forfeiting some of the most fundamental elements of the Christian faith. The elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were in danger, in fact, of embracing a teaching that was undermining the most fundamental truths of the gospel of Christ Himself. A truth by which they had been saved, as Paul mentions in verse number 2. By which also ye are saved. Perhaps they didn't consider it, or perhaps they didn't think it through. Whatever it was, they were now beginning to embrace and, uh, and they, they, I guess they failed to consider the fact that what they were now embracing, in fact, was detrimental to the gospel of Christ, detrimental to the way of truth. H.A. Ironside in his writings in 1 Corinthians noted this. He said, we are almost thankful that the error was permitted to appear so early, that is, in church history, that it might be met with the pen of inspiration. That is, we can be glad that some things we are we read in the scriptures and we realize we're grateful that they appeared early. That way we've been prepared ever since to confront them and to have divine wisdom, inspired wisdom to walk us through many of the errors that are still propagated to this day. Paul counteracts this error. He begins with the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this, if what is taught or what you may hear does not stand up to the truth of the gospel, then it should immediately be discarded upon the rubbish heap of unsanctified opinion. 
Paul says this doesn't, this doesn't measure up to the gospel. Here, of course, we have shown several elements about Christ's gospel. We, we may note a few things. We may note that you have the gospel defined. Of course, the term itself, gospel, which Paul uses in this text, means a, a joyful or a glad message. That's what it means. I'm reminded of when Christ was born in Bethlehem, in Luke chapter number 2, the angel appeared and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you glad tid- or good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Apostle Paul talked about the beauty of the feet of those which preach the gospel of peace that bring glad tidings of good things. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. It is a happy word from God that He has sent a Savior into this world to redeem fallen men unto Himself. The gospel defined. In these verses you have the gospel demonstrated. It is as to how it was brought to fruition by God Himself through and by Jesus Christ. Verse 3 through verse number 5. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen, he says. That's the gospel demonstrated. That is, it was demonstrated through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his dying for our sins and through the resurrection itself. The gospel is not what we have done for God. The gospel is what God has done for us, isn't it? We have done God no favors, have we? And he has done us The tremendous favor. The gospel demonstrated. The gospel is about Christ. It is centered in Christ and what He has done and why He has done it. The gospel demonstrated. Then in this text you have the gospel declared. Paul began this chapter by saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. The word declare simply means to make it known. Let me say this. The gospel did not originate with the apostle Paul. In fact, in verse number 3, Paul reminds them that he also had been a recipient of the truth of the gospel. He didn't create it. He didn't make the gospel. He said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, he says. The gospel did not originate with the apostle Paul. In fact, it's often taught in our secular institutions that Paul was the maker of Christianity, that Paul was the one that that came up with the gospel, that Paul did all this. No, friend, Paul merely was a recipient of the truth of Christ's gospel. In fact, he's very clear on that on a number of occasions. It's God's gospel, isn't it? The gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, like the other apostles, merely received the truth that they were preaching in that hour, but they did not conceive it. In fact, Paul made this emphasis in Galatians 1, verse 11. He said, but I certify you, brethren, I assure you, he said, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul said, I received the gospel. Yet it must also be said and noted that the gospel that was preached by the apostles is the true gospel. It's the only gospel. Those That, that, that gospel that they preached is the true gospel. In fact, he mentions it several times. Notice in verse number 1, Paul said, that gospel which I preached unto you. 
Verse number 2, he magnifies it again if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Again in verse number 3, for I delivered unto you first of all. That is, the, the gospel is the gospel that the apostles themselves were preaching. If we're preaching any other gospel than the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ have preached, we are preaching some other gospel which is not a gospel at all. In fact, Paul in Galatians 1, if I may quote from there again, he said, if any, man, if, any, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that which was preached unto you, let him be accursed. It's the gospel of the apostles to which we are ultimately bound. Having said that tonight, I want to focus in on Paul's simple declaration of the gospel to the Corinthian church. For this is the fundamental message which God brought into the world through Christ, we might say. And so, um, let me magnify several, these four brief things tonight about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I would magnify to you that the gospel of Christ is the gospel of penal substitution. He said, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. That he was given substitutionarily to bear the burden and the guilt and the penalty for our sins. It is the gospel of penal substitution. This little phrase, Christ died for our sins, he knows. There's a couple of things we might say. One, it says something about humanity. Our sins says something about us. Our sins, our impurity, our rebellion. Our impotence to do anything to save ourselves. It declares something about us, about humanity, but it also declares something about Him, doesn't it? His perfection, His glorious person, He is Christ. His, uh, his great sacrifice, He died. His sufficiency, His purity, His power to save. Christ died for our sins. Quite simply, we are reminded of who He is. Christ, he says, died for our sins. This was no ordinary child of Adam. He is God's anointed. He is God's chosen. He was the one whom God set forth in time past for the children of Israel to be all their hope and all their expectation. This was the, the long expected Messiah. This is the Son of God, Christ himself. Christ died for our sins. This is David's greater son. God's chosen the king of the Jews. In him was bound up all the expectation, all the hope of the Jewish people. That's who he is. In fact, the only reason why what he did matters is because of who he is, isn't it? Secondly, we may simply know that we're reminded of what he did. He died, didn't he? Something happened with Christ that many did not expect. All their expectation was bound up in that hour, at least in large part, with a king upon a throne overthrowing the Roman rule. But, but for those who expected someone to enter in and overthrow the Roman rule, something very unexpectedly transpired. He died, didn't he? Christ died, he says. That one glorious life that glorious life with which God was well pleased. 
That one life untainted by sin. That one life lived in perfect obedience to the will of God. That one life has come to an end, he says. Christ died. He was cut off. The the prophet said, out of the land of the living. Turns out he was more than just a king upon a throne. He was a lamb upon a cross, wasn't he? He who said that he was the life died. He who said that he had life in himself died. He who brought others back to life again died. He, if you will, who claimed to give unto his sheep eternal life, died. Christ died. I would magnify a few things anyway about that. Because the gospel is not just that the fact of Christ dying. The gospel is in fact of why Christ died, isn't it? Why he died. So notice we are reminded of why he did it. For our sins. For our sins. Immediately when you read that phrase, you're confronted with the fact of our own failures. You're confronted with the fact of what we are. Not just what He is, but what we are. You're confronted with the fact of our own sin, our own guilt, the deep failures which we ourselves have have, have, have regularly experienced, we might say, our sins. That is, it was we who had failed. It was we who had rebelled against God. It was we who had shaken our fists in the face of God. It was we who deserved to die. And yet, and yet at the same time, it was He who has died for our sins. It was we who had merited divine wrath and eternal punishment. And yet, you find that rather than God bringing that eternal punishment upon us, yet He has placed it upon us. Christ Himself, Christ died for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions, wasn't He? He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The death of Jesus Christ was a unique act. It was not like a normal man dying. For he did not die as a mere martyr for a religious cause. Instead, he died to make perfect atonement for human sin. He died that he might bring us to God to bear the sin, the guilt, and the punishment of our sins upon himself. He died that the penalty which was due unto fallen men might be exacted upon him. That's why he did it, wasn't it? For our sins to make the way whereby God may be just and at the same time forgive those who are unjust and receive them unto Himself. The price was paid when Christ died for our sins. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of penal substitution. Him for us, Christ died for our sins. Secondly, I would have you to notice tonight that the gospel of Christ is the gospel of scriptural verification. Twice, in fact, in verse 3 and again in verse number 4, he makes this, he says this little clause anyway that is so significant. Notice he said in verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he says. 
Verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said, this has everything to do with God's revelation. Two things, two times it is said it was done according to the Scriptures. If anything that reminds us of it is this, that all of this happened and transpired according to divine design. It was no accident. It was no mere happenstance, was it? In fact, when Peter stood to preach on Pentecost, he said, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he says. This was done according to God. Since Paul doesn't mention anything in particular here about it, anyway, and start going into the, the realms where this was so, I'll leave it with the words of the Apostle Paul himself. But one thing we will be sure of, the gospel is something you get out of the book. It's not something you have to read into the book. It happened according to the scriptures. When it comes to the gospel of Christ, it is not, it is not in contrast to the scriptures, but according to the scriptures. According to it. This was a truth that the apostle Paul always insisted upon. The apostle never felt like he had somehow come up with some grand new thing. In fact, he magnified it. Notice in, the, in Acts chapter number 24 and verse number 14 when he stood before Felix, he made this statement. He said, but this I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, he says. When he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter number 26, he made this defense. He said, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. That Christ should, be, should suffer and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul insisted that what he was preaching was simply in scriptural conformity. Sir Robert Anderson years ago made the statement. He said that Christ came to, to found a new religion is a figment of Gentile theology. Christ didn't do any such thing. Christ didn't come to found a religion. He came to bring us home to God, didn't he? Notice here in this statement, according to the scriptures, that this fact precludes a fresh innovation. Let me make this emphasis to you tonight. The apostles themselves were not innovators. They didn't come up with anything. Peter later magnified this when he said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. No, they were not innovators. They were expositors, weren't they? They were expositors of the truth of the Word of God. And so, in fact, it began that way in Acts chapter number 2 when they began preaching the fullness of the gospel of Christ. Peter said, David speaketh of him, doesn't he? He speaks of Christ. A thousand years before he ever came into the world, the appeal is made under the Holy Scriptures. When Paul dealt with the dispersed Jews of that hour, the Bible said in Acts 17 verse number, verse number 2 that, that he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. It was scriptural the entire time. This has always been the divine message. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so from Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15, when God first made promise to then fallen man, anyway, up until Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 6, God has consistently set before humanity the gospel truth of a suffering, dying, buried, risen Savior. That has been the consistent message of the Bible. One gospel from beginning to end. I only say that because I don't know how things are down here, but I know up our way. People are saying that there are different messages in the Bible for salvation. Somehow God had one message then and another message there, another message there, another message there. Anyway, no, God has one gospel, only ever has had one gospel. That was a gospel that was preached unto Abraham. It was the gospel that's preached unto us. We just see it a little more clearly than Abraham did, don't we? But it's the same gospel. The same from one end of the book to the other. And so... It's not a novelty, the gospel isn't, Paul said. It's not some new thing. This happened according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. It precludes a fresh innovation. It preaches a final authorization. It happened according to the Scriptures. The great authority, Paul says, behind the gospel message is the Scriptures. The Word of God written. It's always amazed me in Luke chapter 24 when Christ appears after he had raised from the dead appears to the disciples on their way to Emmaus and we would think you know the first thing that he'd say was look it's me but instead what he does is he said oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the the prophets have spoken and beginning at Moses and all the way through he said he expounded to them in all things the scriptures in all the scriptures the things concerning himself You realize that the Lord Jesus Christ points His people to the written Word of God. While He could show Himself to every one of us, I imagine at some point, anyway in our lives, instead He points us to the written Word of God, to the Scriptures. That That is the authority of the Gospel message. Christ Himself directed us in that way, didn't He? Search the Scriptures, He said, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are these that which testify of Me. It preaches a final authorization. It produces a firm foundation, doesn't it? We're not living merely on personal experience. We're living on something objectively true. Something that's unchanging. Something to which we are all accountable. The gospel of Christ. Objective biblical truth. A firm foundation that does not change. The songwriter had it right when he said, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. This gospel was not an afterthought. It happened according to the Scriptures. The fact is, I believe what Abel believed. I believe what Abraham believed, what Moses believed, what David believed. We may have it in a far more glorious and glaring light than they, but it's the same gospel. The same gospel. It's the gospel of scriptural verification, the gospel of penal substitution. Thirdly, I would magnify to you, the gospel of Christ is the gospel of historical resurrection. Paul magnifies this much that without this, we don't have a gospel. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. What good is a hope if it cannot conquer death? And so, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead on the third day, he knows. 
But you'll notice that Paul, Paul doesn't simply state the fact and then demand belief. He doesn't just say, Christ rose from the dead, you've got to believe it and nothing else. No. Instead he's going to reason with them and give them evidence. Alan Redpath said in his statements here about this text, he said, we have no right to expect that any should believe the gospel unless they have evidence. I think we preachers have erred a lot on that, on that, on that very point. We think people ought to believe it just because we say it. Without any evidence at all, we wonder why so many young people leave, leave our churches whenever they get older and they go to colleges and learn about all kinds of other stuff. And yet we've never supplied them with any evidence at all. We, we could, but we normally don't because we think just, just by course they're supposed to believe whatever we say. That's not the way the Apostle Paul dealt with it. He said, I'll give you some historic evidence on this matter that's irrefutable. Nothing more historically verified than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first grand evidence, of course, that we have is the fact that this happened according to the Scriptures. God had spoken of it long before it ever happened, and yet when it happened, it happened just like God said that it would. That's no accident. No, no. No, that's no accident. The second grand evidence he points to is more historically authenticating. Notice I mentioned this in three, three courses of thought. One, his burial authenticated his death. We often wonder, why does Paul mention his burial? Why does he speak of his burial? All four Gospels record for us the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's because God knows the nature of man. God knew somewhere along the line there'd be those infidels who'd say, well, you know, he probably didn't even die. Probably just swooned, you know, and appeared to be dead. <laughs> anyway, that's what so many have said. Why does Paul mention the burial? Because it authenticates his death. Let's just know he did in fact die. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just appear to be dead. You'll remember the soldiers who were sent to break the legs of those who were crucified that day. They didn't break his legs because the Bible said he was dead already. I think they'd know, don't you? A lot better than some liberal professor would know that he was dead already. When Pilate sent to inquire about whether he was dead, they sent word back and said, yes, he's dead. Of course, those even more closely associated with it, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, when they got his body down on the cross and carried it away and, and put a hundred pounds of spikenard on it anyway to anoint it for the, for, the, for the burial, I imagine they could tell whether or not he was dead. His burial authenticated his death. He really did die, didn't he? Secondly, I want you to notice that his resurrection authenticated his acceptance. It gave proof positive that what he did was, was accepted by God. The atonement that he offered, the mediation that he supplied, all of it was thoroughly accepted by God. The price had been indeed fully paid. The atonement was perfect and God had accepted that. It was the visible evidence of it when he rose from the dead. In fact, his resurrection, his resurrection was visible evidence of several things. It was visible evidence of his perfect righteousness. When Peter preached in Acts chapter number 2, he made the statement, he said that he was, he was raised from the dead because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. 
Death had no legitimate claim over him, did it? Death only has a claim over those who have broken the law of God and sinned against God. But Christ was perfectly righteous. Had no claim over him. So it was a visible evidence of his perfect righteousness. It was visible evidence of his true claims. Here was one who would claim that he was the Son of God. He was God in human flesh. He claimed that he, if you'd seen him, you'd seen the Father. What claims he made for himself. How do we know it's true? He rose from the dead. The Bible said in Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 4, let me read it to you to make sure I can uh, quote it correctly or read it to you correctly. The Bible said he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He let us know his claims are true. His claims are right. The resurrection was the visible evidence that forgiveness of sins is granted through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. It said in Acts chapter number 5 verse number 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Reminds us this is the one that God has appointed to bring us unto himself. This is the one by which we may have legitimate and genuine forgiveness of sin. But then I want you to notice the, the, the eyewitnesses authenticated his resurrection. Notice he said he was seen. He was seen. You can't get any better witness than that. The eyewitness account. He was seen physically, bodily. After he had been dead, he was seen again alive. Notice Paul's magnifying of this, verse number 5, and that he was seen. Verse number 6, after that he was seen. Verse number 7, after that he was seen. Verse number 8, and last of all, he was seen, he says. The evidence of it was unmistakable. Seen alive again by great numbers of individuals at varying times. Anyway, eating with some of them. Anyway, along the way, it was irrefutable. It's beyond dispute. Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, no, no fact in all of Scripture is as well authenticated historically as this. Charles Hodge, the great theologian of years gone by, referred to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the best authenticated event in the history of the world. Nothing more authenticated than that. And so it's the gospel of historical resurrection. The triumph of Christ. Death could not keep his prey. Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus my Lord. It's the gospel of historical resurrection. Lastly I would say it's the gospel of spiritual salvation. He notes in verse 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. I love that word, don't you? Saved. S-A-V-E-D. Saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Verse number 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The gospel of spiritual salvation. This is the saving message. I've been discouraged a lot in this generation. I, uh, from time to time someone will come to me and they'll say, 
was reading someone's testimony. I want you to read this and tell me what you think about it. They'll post something online or somewhere else. And I've been discouraged because a great number of those that I've read, there is no indication of the gospel at all in any of them. And you wonder, how does this happen? This is God's saving message. The Apostle Paul said, He called you by our gospel. That's the way God calls sinners unto Himself, is through and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is necessary, of course, to a sinner's salvation. I often go to Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Genuine faith in Christ is not possible apart from the gospel. The gospel of Christ. I would have you to understand that whatever our professed experience may be, if it does not intimately involve a personal appropriation by faith of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, dying for our sins, raising for our justification, it is not genuinely saving in nature. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by which he said also ye are saved. It is this gospel that brings a sinner out of darkness into, into God's marvelous light. It is this gospel in any way that is preached that brings faith to the heart of sinful men. The gospel of Christ, not, not emotional appeals, not against it necessarily, but we must realize it's not our emotional appeals that are going to move anybody to really toward Christ. It's the gospel. Not, not going to an altar, although I'm not against that, but it's the gospel that saves, isn't it? The gospel of Christ, the message of Christ's grace. The gospel, the gospel. It's not just something you can either have or not have, is it? You've got to have it. You must have it. It must become, it must be taken, we might say, out of objective truth to part of our, our subjective reality. That's what transpires when God saves a sinner through the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. A message not about a work to do, but a work that has been done by our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice by them the gospel was perceived. Because I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. You heard it. He said it came into your world. This message of Christ dying for our sins, being buried, being raised from the dead and, and seen. You have perceived it. You have understood the message that was preached. It reached your ears and you understood it. It was perceived. Salvation is only always by and through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it must first be heard. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It was perceived by them, it was received. He said, which also ye have received. The idea of the word received is to gladly welcome. When you hear the message of the gospel, there is a glad welcome in the heart of, so, of those who know themselves to be sinners. Now the gospel will mean nothing to you if you don't know who you are. They that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. Right? I'm not going around looking for people who, who think themselves healthy. I'm looking for those who know themselves sick. Right? Those who know themselves sinful, guilty in the sight of God, under the burden of sin and guilt in His sight. That crowd you can work with. That crowd will say, that's good news. 
That gospel is good news. As Charles Simeon noted in his writings, he said it was received as true. That's right. If you don't believe it's true, you'll never be saved. It was received as suitable. Never forget when the, you know, I was raised in church, but you know, it's just different when you start actually hearing what's being said, hearing the gospel. And you think, that's exactly what I need. Right? Exactly. That's, that's perfect. Every, every aspect of it is so perfectly suited to where I am. Yes, the gospel, it's suitable. It is received as sufficient. It does the work. Yes, this will, this will carry me on in the favor with God. This will carry me on to glory beyond. It was received. It was perceived. It was believed. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they. You notice that? This statement. Whether it were I or they. Paul's telling us the gospel message is not built around human personalities. Right? Not built around human personalities. Oh no. Paul said whether it was me or them or somebody else. It's the gospel that made the difference. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it was silver-tongued Apollos. Whether it was strong Peter. Whether it was stammering Paul. Made no difference, did it? It was the gospel that they had believed. Human personalities are insignificant when it comes to the salvation of a soul. You have to get over that as a young preacher, don't you? You think somehow you're going to go out there and impress everybody with your ability and everything else, then you realize your ability means nothing. It is the power of God that, that it takes to bring a soul from death unto life. Not our personalities, not our little, quick, our little quips and turns on things, oh no. No, it's the gospel of Christ, isn't it? The gospel of Christ, not the preacher that preaches it. In fact, as far as I can remember anyway, I, I came up under preaching, but you know when you're young, you don't really listen. The first person I can really remember sitting me down, opening a Bible to me, and walking me through the gospel was my mother. Everyone was gone, school and everywhere else, all my brothers and sisters, and everyone was gone. And she said, I was playing outside, and she said, I want you to come in here. And took me into, that, took me into her bedroom, opened up that big old huge red Bible. I thought it was this big, you know. Walked me through the gospel of Christ and called me to repentance and faith. First person I ever remember actually doing that. So whether it's a popular preacher or whether it's a mother taking her child by the hand and saying, let me tell you the gospel. Are you hearing me? Huh? I know people want a glory in the preacher that they were saved under. Let me tell you something. You're just as saved if your mama took you by the hand and shared with you the true gospel of Jesus Christ and you bowed in repentance and, and, and looked unto Christ for life. You're just as saved as anybody who's saved under the biggest name preacher you've ever known in your life. Are you hearing me? Because it has nothing to do with the preachers, whether it were I or they. It has everything to do with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they're preaching. And so, I didn't mean to carry on that much with that, but I think it needs to be said. Belongs, the power belongs to the God who produced it. They believed. Not with some temporary or momentary religious hiccup, he said. They were standing in it in verse number 1. And wherein you stand. That is, you believed it then, you still believe it now. Right? I'll tell you something, if you've ever be truly believed the gospel of Christ, you still believe it. You still believe it. 
It was lasting. Something was wrought that could not be stripped away from, that couldn't be taken away. By this gospel, he said, ye are saved. The gospel of Christ. As many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God. To e- even to as many as believe on his name. You were brought into a ex- state of acceptance with God for the sake of Jesus Christ and him alone. Embracing the gospel, they were made partakers of salvation. Condemnation is past. Justification is come. Let me magnify a few brief thoughts tonight. To the saint, I would say, as Paul writes to a church, beware of any teaching that is inconsistent with the gospel. Measure everything you hear. You say, well, I've never heard anything like that before. Then you better measure it against the gospel, against the scriptures. I would say, secondly, acquaint yourself with the truth. I don't know where they were, young church, but somehow they didn't know the truth well enough to realize when an error had come in. Acquaint yourself with the truth. Cling tenaciously to it. Don't let anything shake you off from the truth of God's Word. Thirdly, I would say countenance nothing that conflicts with established biblical truth. Don't give it any place. Don't give it any place because you're going to lose a lot. Paul will talk about it here in this chapter. You'll lose a lot when you begin to embrace or give place to error. To the sinner, I would say this. To those who do not yet know Christ, unto you is the word of this salvation sent. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, dying for our sins, raised again that we might be righteous in the sight of God. Unto you is the word of this salvation sent. Salvation By the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Salvation founded upon the very word of God. Salvation verified by authentic historical resurrection. Salvation that you may receive. You may perceive. You may believe. And enjoy it in Christ Jesus himself. Brother Kevin, you come tonight. I would quote the old songwriter that said, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. You say, what are we to do? I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms.